also, is this your first podcast ever? This is. Are we doing this? Is this live? We're, we're good to go. We're good to go. All right. Okay. Yeah. This is this is definitely my first podcast ever. So this person obviously doesn't sound like Sharice, and there's a good reason for that. Sharice is out of town. She's been traveling for the last week or so in San Francisco. I don't know if you've been keeping up with her. I've been keeping yeah. up with her Instagram stories. I know. I mean, I'm sure the listeners will be missing Sharice for the the podcast. I'll I'll try my best to to fill in, but it, it, it these was, are big shoes to fill. It was funny because I was on her. Like, obviously, we follow each other on Twitter. She's like, oh, when you're traveling and you're not kind of deep into work, there's nothing to talk about. Really? Yeah. But why? I don't know. Maybe she's just too busy actually doing stuff and not stuck in front of a computer. That's, that sounds miserable, though. I mean, if, if the only thing you have to talk about is work, then surely... I think maybe it's more that you're in front of a computer, so it's more, it's more convenient to, like, update. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So... Obviously, this is Scott. Hello. Maybe maybe you can give us a quick rundown of who you are. Sure. Uh, so I'm Scott and I've known Eugene and Alex for about two years now. And uh, I guess we both I've been, also happen to live in Hong Kong. Yeah, I live in Hong Kong. I'm currently working for Lazada, which is uh, owned by Alibaba. So it's, it's a big e-commerce platform. Yeah. And uh, a lot of my work just revolves around mobile initiatives and business development as well. Yeah. So. so people are probably wondering, why did I pick Scott as a guest? Yeah. Why do you Why do you think I picked you? Because I listen to the podcast, so I actually enjoy the conversations you guys have. But yeah, Scott- on top of that, it's more... I always end up having something to say. <laughs> and so you were just like, oh, you know what? Maybe this could work out. No, Scott always has a lot of feedback. And I think that's always very welcome. And obviously being in Hong Kong and like that makes it a little bit easier because I think face-to-face interaction in terms of doing the podcast is so much easier than as Sharice and I have learned, like when we're doing it remotely on Google Hangouts or something, like you're like talking over each other. You can't really have the same sort of flow in a conversation. It's definitely a little bit more difficult. Before we kick things off, I know that you hit me up on the side about last week's podcast. Yeah. Let me, give me your, give me your thoughts. First off, what was the topic about? Is this a pop quiz? Well, I guess the part that I was not upset about, but that I wanted to talk about was the the Apple stuff, the Huawei, Apple, uh, I guess, what I don't know what they call it, the, ear, the earbuds? Is that Basically what they call it? Basically the wireless earbuds. Right. Yes. Are you pretty familiar with Huawei products? I know enough about the products and the company to, I guess, have some form of opinion about it. But what what was interesting about the conversation is at one point, one of you said something like, Apple is trying to be the first. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was something along those lines. And I remember coming to you and I said, this is incorrect because the mentality for Apple has been and has always been, it's not about being the first, it's about being the best. And so I think that that was historically their approach for most of their products. Mm-hmm. Until recently where at least as a consumer and from a, a purely technical standpoint, if you look at a lot of their products, they've they've fallen off in terms of of where I think the quality is expected to be nowadays. Yeah. And I think that uh, we also were kind of going back and forth and it's like Apple is no longer necessarily a hardware company. It's slowly migrating towards being a services company. Was it you that brought this up once? That Apple's a fascinating company for a million reasons. I think that there's definitely two business models where I could see them going into. The first one would be to offer 
all of their products as a subscription base uh, model. So yeah, yeah. Some I don't these, think this was an original thought from us. No, but I remember we posted something. There was then. yeah. So it was in one of the briefings at some point, and I thought that that was a really powerful idea to say especially to creators who can't necessarily afford Apple products because the premium is still there to say, hey, listen, um, you're basically going to be leasing these and you'll you'll pay a monthly fee. You can give them back whenever you want, but you get access to a full suite of products. And I think that that's a really interesting idea in terms of redefining what hardware means and what you can do with it. Have you heard of Zuora? Zulora? Zuora. Zuora? No. So Zuora just went IPO a few days ago and they're a subscription-based company. So the reason why I brought this up is because they're basically sort of providing the infrastructure for SaaS companies. I think the overall sentiment right now is that, and it's especially fascinating in sort of this, how do you call it? Like post-advertising era we're sort of entering where like, hey, you know what? Whether or not media, obviously media and Apple products are kind of different in a way. Some parts might overlap like, oh, you're Apple News, like they're planning to anyways. Um, There's that. But then there's also this other element where it's like, hey, when it comes down to the future of what powers the internet, I think more and more people are losing confidence in the overall sort of like underpinnings of advertisement. There's two sort of things that are coming at at once here. It's kind of like the belief that advertisements can no longer drive the internet like they once did, but also as we become more accustomed to paying for things, what does that mean? And where will that bleed over into other parts of, uh, let's say the apples of the world, Mm. you know, that are hardware drivers. Obviously with the Facebook hearings, there's a a lot of that going on what is advertising online and where do you draw the line for certain things? And I think that that's also been reflected in the approach to, to how we think about all these things. Uh, there's a famous professor named Scott Galloway, who's a yeah. NYU professor. Uh, I highly recommend his uh, newsletter. It comes yeah. out every Friday. It's very interesting. And so he, his whole thesis is about the four, which are Amazon, Google, Thanks. Facebook, and Netflix. Yeah. yeah. It would be the Fang stocks, but I was trying to think if there was another one in there. He, ne- he sometimes he references Microsoft, but he yeah. doesn't talk about it as much. And his his deal with with that is the cost of of having all these three things is is basically the advertising. And he says that fundamentally, advertising has really polluted a lot of things yeah, that we yeah. have in life, uh, especially in terms of user experience as well, and and the type of information that you're going to go try and get to then sell better advertising. Uh, and I think that that's probably probably what you're trying to say in terms of where we're going to go in the future. And I'm a little bit, I think it'll be interesting, very interesting. Intriguing. I think people need to figure out how we're going to pay for everything. But if you think about Apple, right, that was something, that was a, a good thought that someone shared me, with me once. And I actually think it sticks a lot is if you think about Apple and the, the, the amounts of money people are willing to shell out for the products and the information that they're able to pick up on, Apple is much more of a lifestyle company than they are a hardware company in yeah. my eyes. And so if you think about that and you think about the amounts of cash that they have available, to me, Apple would probably try to do something very different in, for example, becoming an insurance group. Yeah. So if you think about the Apple Health, you have the Apple Watch and all the products that are synced together, if they're able to 
create an experience, which is basically what they have with their ecosystem and add on services, including, for example, education and media, which is something that they're already trying to get into or already are into, that sphere becomes interesting with insurance as well, where you can sell different types of products, insurance products and extensions of that to consumers. Yeah. And I think that that's the... It's kind of the unsexy, but reality of the situation because of everything they're sort of consolidating, right? It's less about the consolidation. I think it's more about the evolution of the business is what you were saying. If, if, if hardware is becoming more and more accessible or, or people are not willing to pay a premium for something, what can you get them to pay for instead, maybe as a subscription, which yeah. is, if you think about insurance, it's some form of subscription for yeah. your life insurance or, yeah. or whatnot. And, um, and try and get people into that. I think that that's uh, an interesting business. I've never thought of it that way. We kind of, we kind of did a, a little bit of a half topic there. Should we get started for the day? Let's do it. Cool. So I was like flip-flopping be, between topics. So my topic this week is, and if you're not a sports fan, just bear with me because it's not really about sports. But the topic is based off an article from The Guardian called How USA Could Win the World Cup with an Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain Assist. So what's the underlying premise behind this? It's It focuses on predicting development of individuals differently based off of science. So obviously right now it starts with a sort of soccer-based, football-based context. The story is about Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, former Arsenal player that was sold to Liverpool FC. And since moving to Liverpool, he's kind of enjoyed a bit of a revival in his career. When he was younger, James Bunce, the current U.S. soccer's high-performance director, made an inference that certain players who weren't at the proper physical level should be kept alongside players of similar physical levels. So what that means is that if you're kind of a late bloomer, you should be playing with players of the same stature and not necessarily moving up because your age suggests you should move up. Um, And the reason I picked this is because of the connection that exists with sport and science. And this whole concept of biobanding that Bunce came up with is basically about grouping players based on physical maturity and not age. And I think biobanding also sort of opens up the door to other things too, which is in some ways psychological banding. So that means like, are you on the same sort of mental maturity level to be given sort of certain tasks? The reason I picked this is what does that mean for the future? And how much should we be optimizing for the real world implications of this? While this exists within the realm of soccer, does it have other implications in the creative world, like photography, like being an accountant, et cetera? So that's sort of like, in a nutshell, kind of the, the topic at hand. So in the UK, there's a saying, it's if you're, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And, um, and the reason why I bring this up is what's interesting about this article is thinking about where's a, f- a player physically and mentally in terms of their ability to play, right? In a sports context. Sure. And and how, but I think that there is a, what, what's really interesting about athletes in general is people tend to forget that they're people as well. And so when you see an 18 year old go on the field, you forget that he's an 18 year old. A lot of people just say, oh, this kid is getting paid millions to do this, but this is just a kid going out there and different people develop very differently. Mm-hmm. But what I'm interested in is like, are we going to enter a point in time when everything becomes tested? Everyone has a very clear indication of what they're better at. And are we going to be forcing people to enter certain tasks or certain opportunities 
because they befit those roles. And that's more of a, like a, like a, that's more of a philosophical thing. So that's, that's a pretty ex- existential question. Well, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I'm interested in because I was thinking about this. And I'm like, you know, we're, we're at a point in time and where we're always trying to find a certain level of optimization. And if optimization leads us down a certain path, what does that mean? And I think there is part of humanity that's always been about optimization. Mm-hmm. It's just that you now you're accelerating it through technology. But so that's a great question in today's context of artificial intelligence. So if you think about competing against a machine, if if you only have a window of opportunity to outperform it, and if that's what you're really good at, then that's your opportunity to best it for at least a certain amount of time. But if you're not, what do you then do? And so your question was, should we box people into what we think they're good at, at least what from the, a KPI standpoint? Yeah. Okay, so objectively, you're better at math than uh, history. Yeah. So maybe you're more of a scientific mind. Yeah. So that means that you're going to go into this. But the counter argument to that is, does the person enjoy that more or not? Because yeah. I, you're a creative person and you've, you see Try this. Try to. <laughs> you see this when you, when you work. Yeah. I think this is important. When you work, what you care about permeates the way you do it yeah. rather than what you're good at. Yeah. So there might be things that Eugene is not good at, but he does because he enjoys it. And knowing that he's able to optimize based off of his weaknesses. Yeah. Do you think that's true in terms of what you do already? I would say that in general, I probably have a little bit of a different mindset because I, I'm probably somewhere like in between the perspective of analysis and creativity. I probably am somewhere in the middle, but maybe even closer to the analytical side. But I'm, I'm just curious. It's like, there's a lot of different things that are swirling around. It's like, if you're better at a certain thing and you bring more value to society and culture and the tests show it, what does that mean for you? Or like, it's kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of like this political ideology in that as well, right? But I just wonder if like, is it even worth exploring as a technology front? Like obviously youth soccer and youth football, it's a little bit different because they're, that is the sport itself. That's yeah. the goal. The goal is to build the best player possible that can win games. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I don't think it's black and white for people. So society and culture is not like a zero sum game. Yeah. Like, but if you think about most societies today and how competitive the world has become, you want to optimize through what your skills are. So maybe you're not necessarily, so I guess what your argument is, you might not necessarily like something, but you just happen to be very good at it, which could be a byproduct of your upbringing or a byproduct of how often you've tried it before. Correct? Yeah. And so if this is the case, then should you keep doing that? And should you just run that till you that you become a master at it or, or whatever it is? And I think that the problem with that mentality is it works for maybe some people who are laser focused and who know exactly what they want to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work out that way. The other thing is learning to extrapolate, extrapolate skills. So someone that has an analytical skill set that might be very useful in, say, a human resource context. But if you don't try and think broadly about the skill set itself, then you, it's very easy to put someone in a box. Okay, you're good at math, so you should be an accountant. Yeah. That's not the right way of thinking yeah. about it. It's more you you analyze things in a logical way. Yeah. How can that permeate 
a passion that you have or something that you're more interested in. And yeah. I think that that was what makes a lot of industries change over time is having these people who maybe don't fit the mold, yeah. but push the boundary. This whole conversation has made me think that in like this whole testing thing actually already exists. It's like, that's what school is about. But I guess what I was thinking about is like, there's something a little bit different where you're kind of forced into these silos and the silos themselves are predetermined. Okay. Like we've decided that in culture and society, like math, biology, physics, chemistry, et cetera, those are like the kind of critical pillars that we're going to test you on. And I just wonder if that's a little bit narrow sighted. Here's a question for you. And this can kind of like wrap it up in a way. If you knew beforehand that you could take a test to see if you'd be good at something immediately, would you do it? Or would you rather just go through it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would want to know if you, if you can perform whatever task you, you, you're interested in performing. I think that that's fair. But then I guess the counter question to that is, let's say I told you that the test says that you would not be a good fit for that. The counter, you know, counter, I think this is a human tendency to say, well, I don't agree with that. And so I'm going to try everything I can to disprove you. I would disagree. I think that not everyone's like that. I think that point itself is what was going to be my next question or my next sort of point to make is that I think there's something to be said about the tenacity and like the will and the development of the will to actually like go and do something. That whole thing about tenacity and will is kind of what defines humans, right? And I think... You can zip it up. I was I noticed it. Yeah. Scott's zipping up his fly right now. I might have to keep that in. <laughs> there you go. But uh making it up. <laughs> but no, to that point, I think that that's the one thing that I personally like I, I think part of me would like to know. Sometimes it's just nice to engage in something without any preconceived notions of what success failure looks like and just try it and then also use the learnings of failure to apply it in other places. Right. I think that's, that's, you raise a great point. If you don't try it, you'll never know. And the, the value of failing, and I actually hate that word failing. I think it's more the value of experience period because failure just means that you've either stopped or that you're, you just think, okay, this is an A or B thing. And I just think, no, this isn't working for me. Um, The value of trying and the value of whatever you're going to learn from it, that's going to inform a lot of things going forward in your life, I think. It's like, imagine if you could do a test where someone would tell you when you would die. Yeah, It's kind of the same thing, right? It's, it's, it's a stretch, but if, if you know when something is supposed to, to, to be, you could be a def- defeatist about it and say, oh, well, my days are numbered. Or the flip side is, okay, I can try and do everything I can in, in, in that space. So it's the same thing with experience. Instead of if you had that test and someone said, oh, well, you'd never be good at this. And let's say the test is 94% accurate. That mm-hmm. means there's still a 6% chance that potentially you could excel at it. Maybe that hope for some people is what drives them to if they're really passionate about it, just to keep going anyways. It's the same with athletes at the end of the day. There's so many athletes out there. The ones that end up making it, they're not always- I think even beyond athletes, I think anyone that is looking for a certain level of success, whether it's an athlete, whether it's a painter, photographer, whatever, like- You deal with adversity. Yes. Well, I guess I bring up athletes because this article was about athletes. If you think about arguably the world's best player right now, Lionel Messi- he has none of the attributes of the world's best strikers yeah. or what you would expect out of the world's best striker. And yet, 
at least from a physical standpoint. Yeah. And yet he finds a way consistently to be, to be great. And I think that that probably goes into that same point that just because something on paper says you can't do it doesn't mean that potentially if you don't work through that adversity, you can make it to the point where yeah. you want to go. I think there is part of this whole testing that, that is maybe missing and whether or not, I think I, I personally have kind of moved past the notion that everything should be tested. Although obviously there's validity in it, but I think that an overly test-driven world has sort of proven itself to, to suggest certain results, like create certain sort of results. But to that point, it's like there's physical attributes, there's psychological sort of well-being. And I think the third missing one, it's very difficult to kind of categorize as like just intangible skills. I think that's sort of like, you know, to use your messy reference, to use like anyone else, like a photographer or whatever, there's certain intangible elements there that I think that is probably the missing link because there's physical limitations always at hand. I think that's sort of the beauty of like what a great manager does, right? Like mm-hmm. great organizational health is driven by that intangible sort of skill. Yeah, and I think a player's background, family, uh, and state of mind, you were saying, you were mentioning uh, mental health before. And I think that, that that plays into it as well. What what kind of environment do you come from and how is it supporting you? That helps you as well as a player. But to talk about measuring things in KPIs, if you want to talk about tech, I think the future of tech and of education is not really about testing, as you said, anymore. It's much more about gamification. So how can you make someone play a game and they get better at something, not really thinking about getting better at it in the mm-hmm. first place? And I think that when you think about the school system today, everything is still very much standardized as it was a hundred years ago. And it's not catering to the different skill sets and the different types of people that we have nowadays who will need, you need that diversity in order to succeed. And so if you can gamify the process, then you can, you can probably piece out what someone's core skills are and that can help you going forward. Uh, make sure that this person has the best possible life given their current set of skill sets and that they can go on and develop them further in the future. I think that's a good place to cap it off. topic was about helicopter parenting so there was i've done zero research actually i watched the video yeah but like i've deliberately sort of gone in without any sort of like great i'll be interviewing i'll be i'll be pop quizzing you then (laughs) so are helicopter parents ruining a generation can i ask you why you picked this and this is my immediate sort of um my question because like obviously you're a bit younger Mm -hmm. you're younger than me i am yeah so like well how does parenting factor into like why you picked this this topic is dear to me for multiple reasons i think this topic inherently ties back to a lot of things that were discussed in a podcast before especially with regards to echo chambers and social media and i think that as we'll discuss you'll you'll kind of understand where, where i'm coming from with this the other thing is i'm recently married and hopefully there'll come a point where i want to have kids as well you grew up between the u.s and france no well, I, I grew up in France and then I grew up in the UK and then I, I went to school in the US. So your parents are? French-American. That's interesting because there's there's always discussions around the French-style parenting. 
And like, do you grow up under that household? Yeah. And do you know what I'm talking about, right? Like just kind of like Def- French define people. It. I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear that. I've always thought that French parents treat their kids as adults. Yes. So which side did you grow up on? I don't I don't want to generalize a whole culture, but I've always found that French kids mature faster. At least at least the the younger part of the the growth cycle. I think that kids just are are more adept at certain things and and they're treated as adults, right? Yeah. Even in terms of drinking culture, if your kid is 13, 14 and you give him a little bit of wine or something like that, it's socially acceptable. Uh, and, and I think getting people to be a part of the conversation rather than just watching it, that's probably part of our culture as yeah. well, for yeah. sure. No, I just thought that was interesting because I knew i knew a little bit about your background growing up. It's also funny because when you go to schools, everyone is raised kind of the same way, right? So it perpetuates that cycle of growing up a little faster than, than most. Yeah. Maybe before we go any further, you can explain a bit the topic. The article is called... Our Helicopter Parents Ruining a Generation. It was written by Julie Lithcott-Hames. It's about f- basically four reasons why helicopter parenting is a thing. And maybe I should just start by defining what helicopter yeah. parenting is. And you is. think this is like kind of a culturally relevant topic, right? This is, a, in my eyes, it's a very relevant topic in terms of our generation uh, going forward in terms of becoming leaders and also what that means for future generations as well. So if... The concept of helicopter parenting is the idea is that you always have a parent hovering above you, just making sure that you're not messing up or or having to you're not doing anything bad or you're you're striving at the best of your potential, keeping in mind that this is in their eyes rather than just what might be the case for your yourself. So if you think about parenting today as a from a societal standpoint, I don't know if you've never ever noticed this, but whenever I go to a restaurant nowadays and I see a family, the kids are on their phone. Yeah, they don't pay attention. The they do, they don't pay attention to the parents. There's no there's no conversation anymore. I have to say that when I was in South America, like I think that because they've yet to kind of fully adopt a digital lifestyle, they're much better for it, which is interesting. I would counter that point by saying that culturally, especially in Latin American cultures. I have I have a I, I have a few uh, Latin American friends, and I've I've had the chance of of being in Latin American countries, and there's a strong culture of the family, and there's also a strong food culture, and what that but means. I is, think you could argue the same for like Asian culture too, right? Yeah, but then I think it's really about digital adoption. Like, what phase of the digital adoption uh, sort of range are they in? Is it, is it a cultural thing or is it a digital thing? I think it's a digital thing. Okay, fair enough. I think that if you fast forward in 10 years and we look back, I think that you will see similarities of what sort of Western world countries are going through right now mm. in emerging digital markets. Perhaps. I think that's that's an interesting thought. I'm not sure. Uh, so then but that's my question to you is, yeah. do you think we'll have a digital culture that'll be very much the same everywhere? rather than these cultures that are one way or another delimited by a country's borders. I think part of me feels as though we're in a pendulum and we've gotten, while it's difficult to predict when you're at the end of this cycle, the swing, Mm -hmm. but I think at some point in time, digital culture as it matures, because I think we're still very much in a nascent world of digital culture. Mm -hmm. Like it'll it'll probably normalize into a healthier place. Okay. Because I think that you can't optimize, you can't, sort of take advantage of people forever. Like I think at some point in time, 
there's going to be, whether it's regulation, whatever, like it's going to, if not naturally through momentum, something's going to forcibly pull it back. Okay. But so I guess to, to go back to the topic at hand, if you think about parenting in this context, maybe parenting in the context of digitalization, what what is it that we're that we're expected to be as adults? What does it mean to be an adult nowadays? And I think that that also ties into the the, the concept of convenience, which I know was discussed before, and that's something that I really thought about as to why I picked this topic in the first place. If for a young adult today, everything has become very convenient, the skills that maybe were required in the past, which are, I think it's it's hard to just think about skills as skills themselves. It's more about building the right habits of having certain responsibilities. Like instead of giving your clothes away to get washed by some new startup that can do all that for you, actually washing your clothes or yeah. making your food or whatever else. That's part of being an, odu- an adult is having these responsibilities. And if we're not doing that anymore in this digital world, what does that mean going forward where if these adults are having kids, is there, is there an implication that maybe their kids are not going to have these skills as well? It's interesting because it kind of brings us back to the original point you made where obviously every generation is meant to advance and further a culture, right? But I think there is part of me that feels as though the act of doing things physically or just bringing it back close to home almost becomes like an elitist thing because you have the time to do it. Uh, That's true. This is a very complex topic because at sufficient scale, like I think... Uber is something that potentially could be something everyone could take, mm-hmm. right? What does that mean? And is Uber classified differently than you driving yourself to the supermarket? Sure. Right? Maybe there's different categories that need to be broken out where washing your own clothes is one thing, cooking your own food is another thing. Like maybe it's very practical sort of requirements versus things that are maybe almost like hobby-based, leisure-based. Because cooking is like, can be deemed as obviously there's a functional element to it, but it can also be leisurely based. Sure. And your argument is if you have the luxury of cooking in the first place, then that would be something that someone that has the capabilities of doing it because of space, because of time, those are all things that kind of factor into the greater picture. But then flip it, right? If you think about, we live in Hong Kong. If you think about the average high powered professional who works in finance, they'll be working 12 to 16 hour days. They don't have the luxury of cooking and they don't, they just order in all the time. So yeah. that, I guess that works counterintuitively yeah. as well. And I'm not sure I completely agree with what you're saying, but I do take your point though, that- I think it's really complex yeah. to be honest. Cause like, I think that we're, we're obviously in, in a certain position to have that option. And I think that's the, the critical takeaway is the option, right? Like if you really wanted to- go and make your own food, you could, or you could order in. But I think for some people, they have certain options off the table. Fair enough. But so parenting then becomes something kind of crucial to that, right? Yeah. And so the the, the article points to four reasons as to why helicopter parenting happens today. So one is fear of dire consequences. One is fear feelings of anxiety, overcompensation, and peer pressure. Uh, I'll break them down for you. So fear of dire consequences... I would call that almost a biological response where if you have a kid, you just want to make sure that your child is safe safe all the time. But that can become an extreme where you just don't let your child do anything at a certain point. And I mean, you see parents sometimes just guarding their kids extremely closely. 
And just to maybe give a, a, a sense of what the whole overall picture is as well as as part of a child's development, they argue that helicopter parenting doesn't help because that will lead these shortcuts that you take in terms of helping your kid out a lot end up costing your kid progress personally. So a lot of them will have to deal with anxiety in the future. Some of them will get depression. Uh, and I, I guess that's one extreme to another. But the point is, if this is the case, if if I think it's this expression, right? The, ho- the road to hell is paved with good in- intentions. I think yeah. the parents want the best for their kids. But what that ends up happening at the end of it is you go, you go on the other end of the spectrum and it actually made things worse. And if all the kids are being nannied that way, does that mean that we're going to have a society that's you, not You know what? There's a very real sort of generation that has already been part of helicopter parenting. And that's everything you see within this current crop of people born in China and Hong Kong. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you have a brother, right? Mm-hmm. I have a brother. We both grew up, whether it's the UK, whether it's in France, I grew up in Canada. We, our parents never really had a limitation on like, if they wanted to have five kids, they could have five kids. So I think that's always been the thing is that you're seeing this sort of happen in real time because there's a generation of people that were limited in how many kids they could have. So they're the single child. They have you know, upwards of six people looking after them. They have two sets of grandparents and then their own parents, mm-hmm. right? I think that's something that cannot be discounted because I, I'm, this isn't by any means a shit on like the culture that I'm part of, right? Like you and I both have been in Hong Kong for a reasonable amount of time, but it's like, I think you kind of see the ramifications of it. Right. And this is, this is like something that I'm always interested to hear about is like, when I look at sort of the ability for people to utilize this abundance of resources at their disposal, like I haven't, I've been a little bit disappointed with like what people have been able to achieve. And maybe it's a mix of a bunch of things. And this is me not saying that it'll never happen, but it's like, you know, you have an abundance of family resources because there's only one child. You have, you know, with that comes the ability to do certain things. Maybe it's like, a, a thing that revolves back around cultural limitations of like failure, right? I don't know. I don't want to get too complex into that. But I think there, there's something to be said, like this helicopter style parenting, like I think that you're kind of seeing what what is a byproduct of it. The ramifications of it going forward are, is exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's all about how, what are we doing with the resources that we're, that we're given? Our, our generation is blessed with so many resources we have the internet where we can go source any type of information that we want mm-hmm. and you know going back to your our earlier article it also ties back into that if you if you can learn anything what are you doing with the learning as well my my mother was a librarian for the longest time mm-hmm. and she always thought it was mind-blowing that in an environment where kids have the internet and they can look up anything they still don't know how to look things up properly And I think that also ties back into nannying your kids, right? If you're always giving them the information for you on their behalf or you're doing the work for them, you have parents that do their their kids' homework in college and that's one of the examples that they give. That's where you're not allowing your child to to fail and you, you create these glass boxes where people are not being open enough for themselves to just try and experiment. Actually, you've, you've kind of opened up this massive sort of like <laughs> box of Here ideas. Here we go. <laughs> but no, that's the point where it's like, are, are we currently, I think that the, the, the general sentiment, and it's like a stereotype, and it's not to say whether it's right or wrong, but 
a lot of people are always like, how do I put this? I, I speak to a lot of people that run a business and like, obviously there's hiring for talent, bringing people on board into the picture. And they always kind of complain about this particular sort of, and this is typecasting, obviously, like this millennial mindset of people that come into the work environment, right? Sense of entitlement. Whatever it may be. And is that sort of actually more of a byproduct of bad parenting above all else? So it's easy to blame one thing or another. Uh, but I do think that it plays into it, right? And that's also why I picked this topic is if this is how at least my generation is going to be, then what does that mean for the next generation? Mm-hmm. Is it a, a regression cycle where you're just kind of going down one step yeah. even more and even more? And that's a little bit, I guess, concerning to what, me. What I do find interesting is to that point is that if the the boat inherently rocks to one side, everyone sort of rushes to one side. Let's say the right side is sort of this um, helicopter parented style of of growth and like personal development. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, right? Does it make it easier to differentiate yourself from it all? You know what I mean? And obviously you take the higher road of like, what's more challenging, what develops grit and determination. Right, so- that's actually one of the one of the four things that we were talking about before was one of them is peer pressure. And peer pressure is not on the kid, it's actually on the parent. So if you have a kid and your friend's kid is performing a lot better at school and the parents are helicopter parenting their own child, then the argument is you're going to want to do the same thing because there's a pressure that you feel that you are need, you need to help your kid get to that level. And that also plays into this idea of feelings of anxiety where you know how difficult and challenging the work environment is today or the, the the professional environment or even just the environment is in general. And so to ensure that your child doesn't have to deal with a lot of these problems, you try and prep them as best you can to take on the world. Yeah. When in fact, getting experience and actually figuring out what your core skills are, which is only something you can do yourself, that will help you determine how successful you will be going forward. Yeah. Are, are you basically... Fucked if you've gone through 18 years of helicopter parenting. I think you have a lot of innate characteristics that you need to kind of like fix. Or I think there's a lot of things that will have gone into your education, small yeah. reflexes that you'll have to unlearn in order to, for you to, to succeed. Yeah. And part of it is going back to what you were saying about that millennial mentality. When you get hit in the face with the real world, it's like, okay, I have to rethink through what yeah. my expectations are and also what I have to contribute as well. I think that's like the most interesting thing because I think that we've been almost like overly critical over the course of this podcast. Like what I find really interesting is that like learning is sort of this lifelong commitment that I think more and more people are are coming around to. And I think that lifelong commitment is something that I that's kind of what I want in many ways making to be. It's like, hey, you know what? What I whatever no, preconceived notions I might have come into this discussion with you today, like maybe you can help me see it a different way, mm-hmm. and I can unlearn what I believe to be true. Right. I think that's the most interesting and critical thing amongst all of this is that like people are gonna, I'm gonna say some shit people are don't, not gonna agree with, and I think that that the the initial reaction is disagreement, but the second reaction should be like why, you know what I mean? And I think that is what is the critical component that will hopefully allow people to like at least make some sort of progress. Or at least stress test their own ideas. I don't want to go into necessarily religion, but there's there's something interesting about the the Jewish faith, which is when you 
grow up Jewish, at least this is according to my Jewish friends, you, you spend the first part of your education questioning God and questioning your, uh, your faith. And I think that that's a really important mechanism to have is always question why something is done a certain way or why something is the way it is. Because if you have that mechanism in place, then you're able to question even your own skills and question uh, why you do certain things a certain way. And that helps you progress, right? Understanding that if Eugene comes to me with a better uh, proposal for doing something or thinking about something, if I can question my own way of thinking, that helps me progress in the future. That's kind of the same thing with unlearning and, and understanding actually this bias comes from, you know, either my parents or either my education always telling me one thing when in fact, maybe in a different context or in a different region of the world, it just looks very, very different. And having that perspective and being able to seek that perspective helps you grow as a person. But you can't do that if you're always spoon-fed everything. We did a story, like we did it with James Jean and Jun Cha. And basically their whole conversation was as artists, you get to a certain point where people come to recognize you for a certain aesthetic, a certain sort of language. But at some point in time, that personally becomes maybe a little bit stagnant or boring. So you kind of have to go through this mental process of kind of ripping down the walls. And I think that's an incredibly challenging thing. But like, no one says that it discounts anything you've done in the past. You just know that you've hit a, a certain like plateau. And like, if you want to progress, it's about knowing what got you to to milestone A is not what's going to get you to milestone B. Right. Makes sense. And you can't do that if someone else is always doing it for you. Because the other thing is, I think that's also part of the interesting aspect of parenting is, Parents, I always thought this was a beautiful image, is your parents care about you because they're coming back from where you're going towards. So they've had that journey one way or another. But contextually, that journey is going to be extremely different from one generation to another. So some lessons are valuable and will always be there and are very important. But it's also about understanding that the context is always going to be very different. And so adapting a lesson to a context, I think if the more universal the lesson is in terms of the message you're trying to teach your child, for example, the better it is in terms of your child is going to be able to apply that to, to a bunch of different things rather than just saying, okay, this is how it is and this is why, which might not be the case in 10 years time. I think that's a good place to end things off for the day. It was interesting. Like I haven't done a co-hosted making it up and I didn't really know how it would go to be honest. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Was, I, I enjoy it. I think it's the thing that was the most enjoyable about this period was the topics that were discussed were really about what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. Yeah, You have to deal with these new ways of being measured all the time. And so trying to rethink how you're going to grow, but also you live in such a world where it's- It's funny. It, Both topics ended up relating back to one another yeah. in some way. And I, you know, like I said, I changed my topic like probably 35 minutes before we were supposed to meet up. Hey, I'm going to let you do the honors of reading Sharice's part. Oh, really? Oh, awesome. Let me pull that up. Can, can I can I say and this is making it up you know that's my line no, no, I want to say that line okay fine I'll let you do it <laughs> tell you what let me read Teresa's part okay this is bad let this me, is like I, I've always wanted to do this like I, I get to I get to I be, guess this is this is fair you're you're the guest I get to be Eugene for the day if you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities which include exclusive content and a members only Slack channel head over to Macon.com there you'll experience some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. 
You can also subscribe to Macon through your favorite podcast app and platforms, including Spotify. Yeah, which is that where you listen to your stuff? No, I don't have Spotify. I don't do believe in Spotify. What do you use? That's for a different conversation. Yeah, I use uh, I use podcasts on on Apple Music. You gotta go to Overcast, bro. Yeah, is that is that what it is? That's all you gotta use Overcast. At? Yeah. Uh, uh, before this is you too. Okay. If you like this podcast, you or can, you like Scott's voice, mm, well. <laughs> If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Scott. I'm Sharice. No, I'm Eugene, actually. And this is Making It Up.